Last episode, we discussed the life of Virginia Woolf, a feminist writer of the 20th century. In this episode, we'll delve into A Room of One's Own, a powerful lecture she delivered to a group of young women from the Cambridge Colleges of Newnham and Girton in 1928. The lectures were compiled and published in 1929. In this summary and analysis of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, her groundbreaking and often heartbreaking work, we'll discover what it was like for women who wrote fiction historically and during her lifetime. We'll discuss Judith, the hypothetical sister of Shakespeare, Jane Austen's mastery of the sentence, and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. In the end, we'll talk about the primary things Virginia Woolf says are the most important for any woman hoping to create her best works of art. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. Her finger circled the rim of her coffee, too hot to drink just yet. She rested the other hand on the purple heart desktop. The smooth, deep purple color made her smile. Purple was her husband's favorite color, and she always wrote in purple ink. So in some beautiful way, the desk was a physical embodiment of their work, her words, and his craftsmanship. They both worked in purple. The legs were mahogany, with a slight curved Queen Anne look. The base was circa 1830, and even though it was too small to hold her Apple desktop, she held on to it the last couple of moves. She couldn't bear to let go of the years of writing people who'd gone on to see about it, as her father always said, had done. Words were a memory on this desk, that she wanted to tap into. But it never quite fit anywhere, a fact that felt reminiscent of her own writing until she spoke to her husband about extending the desk. She'd had this thought, you see, about cutting the lovely antique, as sinful as it was, in half, replacing the top and extending the middle. Can it be done? She asked him. I think so, but I'm nervous about messing it up. It's so old. But it's useless to me right now, she'd argued. She was never one to have useless things. Everything must have a purpose or a memory. Anything for you, he'd said. Within the course of a few weekends, the beautiful desk was transformed into something altogether new. The legs and drawers were the same, but the desk purple top was purchased from an exotic wood shop, a special treat for their anniversary. The top even kept the curves of the original, but it was bigger and now was the appropriate size to hold her desktop computer. Though she didn't have a room of her own, 
She now had a space of her own. Her logo hung beside her with a whiteboard in the back for writing notes and fleshing out ideas. There was a promise there, even in the midst of a difficult season, that this desk, this space, would help her birth new books, new stories. All a mix of old and new, coming deep from within a purple heart. This week marks the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment being certified in the United States, which gave women the right to vote. Studying Virginia Woolf, a pivotal figure in the feminist movement, during this time deepened my appreciation and gratefulness for how far we've come since she gave this lecture in 1928. Yet, there is still work to be done. But imagine, if you can, sitting in a hall in 1928, hoping that this woman, Virginia Woolf, will give you the key to understanding how to be a successful woman writing fiction. Even now, people hoping to sell you some course or book on how to be a successful author will tell you that it's the best time to be a writer. With the widespread adaptation of the independent publishing model, the ease in which to publish ebooks, paperbacks, and even hardbacks, Many have abandoned the archaic standard of traditional publishing houses in favor of seeing their writing as a business of their own. This is exactly what Virginia Woolf did all those years ago, having started her own small business publishing her books and the works of others she admired. But being an author, then or now, is not a path of financial stability for many people, which is one of the pivotal parts of Woolf's speech in a room of one's own. While we delve into the details of what she says, imagine that you have one foot in 1928 and one foot in the present day. How much has really changed? In the beginning of A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf discusses how difficult it was to pin down what exactly she would talk about concerning women and fiction. During her lifetime, things had changed dramatically with the women's suffrage movement, but women were still a far cry from being equal to a man. She ultimately settled on some facts, one being that a woman must have money and a room of her own if she wants to write fiction. Wolf believed women should be educated and be given the space in which to read, think, and write works that could inspire the future. It had always been, even in her time, difficult for women to make fiction and certainly make an income from it. Women did not have the education like men, and their intellect was not respected. She goes on to talk about Judith, a hypothetical sister of Shakespeare. Assuming that Judith had the same gifting as Shakespeare, would she have been able to rival her brother? Judith would not have been educated 
she would not have had the opportunities that her brother would have had, and she would not have been able to respectfully go on and pursue her dreams of producing plays and works of greatness. While Virginia visited a library, she noticed all the books by men about women. And she began to wonder, why would men write so often about women if they were not somehow intimidated by them? She also mentions, but where are all the women writing about men? Because women typically did not do so. Virginia Woolf also doesn't shy away from the fact that good writing is often produced by the privileged. She says it is privilege because they have to be able to afford to spend their time in creative pursuits. She says, This may be true or it may be false, who can say? But what is true in it, so it seemed to me? Reviewing the story of Shakespeare's sister as I had made it is that any woman born with a great gift in the 16th century would certainly have gone crazed, shot herself, or ended her days in some lonely cottage outside the village, half witch, half wizard, feared and mocked at. For it needs little skill in psychology to be sure that a highly gifted girl who had tried to use her gift for poetry would have been so thwarted and hindered by other people, so tortured and pulled asunder by her own contrary instincts, that she must have lost her health and sanity to a certainty. No girl could have walked to London and stood at a stage door and forced her way into the presence of actor-managers without doing herself a violence and suffering and anguish, which may have been irrational. She goes on to discuss how difficult it is to produce a work of art. She said that the world is indifferent to art. She says it does not ask people to write poems and novels and histories. It does not need them. It does not care whether we find the right word or whether we scrupulously verify this or that fact. Naturally, the world will not pay for what it does not want. If anything comes through in spite of all of this, it is a miracle, and probably no book is born entire and uncrippled as it was conceived. But for women, I thought, looking at the empty shelves, these difficulties were infinitely more formidable. But to make money by your pen would be something altogether more difficult. However, she says that money dignifies what is frivolous if unpaid for. And for Virginia, the ultimate goal for young ladies who wish to be writers is to make money from their pen and their wit. Jane Austen was one of the few writers who was able to perfect a sentence, as Virginia Woolf would say, without giving in to emotion or allowing her own circumstances and anger to bleed through the page. Jane Austen did not have a room of her own to write in. Instead, she wrote in a sitting room, surrounded by her family members. When people would come over, she would cover up her writing and go on to participate in needlework or other activities 
with the other ladies. Jane Austen's nephew wrote, How she was able to affect all this is surprising, for she had no separate study to repair to, and most of the work must have been done in the general sitting room, subject to all kinds of casual interruptions. She was careful that her occupation should not be suspected by servants or visitors or any persons beyond her own family party. If Jane Austen was unhappy with the way her life turned out or the way her art was coming along, it's not apparent in her work. And this, Wolfe says, is part of her great mastery. After discussing Jane Austen, she switches gears to Charlotte Bronte and her work, Jane Eyre. Charlotte, unlike Austen, allowed herself to bleed on the page. In Jane Eyre, there's a quote that says, Anybody may blame me who likes. Then I longed for a power of vision which might overpass that limit, which might reach the busy world, towns, regions full of life I had heard but never seen. That then I desired more of practical experience than I possessed, more of intercourse with my kind, of acquaintance with variety of character than was here, within my reach. I valued what was good in Miss Fairfax and what was good in Adele, but I believed in the existence of other and more vivid kinds of goodness, and what I believed in I wished to behold. Who blames me? Many, no doubt. And I shall be called discontented. I could not help it. The restlessness was in my nature. It agitated me to pain sometimes. This quote is evidence, according to Wolfe, that Charlotte was unhappy with her living situation, with her lot in life. To allow our characters to be characters complete and of themselves is what a writer should always strive for. Allowing ourselves as writers to bleed into our characters is a disruption to the reader's experience. Wolf shares about the sad state of affairs of the Brontes during their lives. The Brontes had barely enough money to buy paper to write their novels. So this quote by Charlotte Bronte no doubt did share her heart's desires. She goes on to share about George Eliot, who she claims escaped after much tribulation just to settle in the shadow of the world's disapproval. Even so, Eliot still seemed to wish to be understood. After discussing some of the most successful women writers of history, Virginia Woolf goes on to talk about the difficulties of being a woman and wanting to write. She discusses how many or most successful female writers were historically childless. And Wolfe isn't shy about stating the fact that women's domestic duties as a wife and mother inevitably makes writing for a living more difficult because their time and energies are stretched so thin. Today, there are numerous women who are mothers and wives and successful writers, but historically, there were few exceptions. But people like Mary Shelley come to mind. Even though there are many successful writers who juggle all of their responsibilities, no doubt their time has to be carefully managed. And what makes a good novel anyway? 
She makes a shift from writer to novel in talking about the structure of a tale. She says, Thus a novel starts in us all sorts of antagonistic and opposed emotions. Life conflicts with something that is not life. On the one hand, we feel you, John the hero, must live, or I shall be in the depths of despair. On the other, we feel, alas, John, you must die, because the shape of the book requires it. Life conflicts with something that is not life. Then since life it is, in part, we judge it as life. The whole structure, it is obvious, thinking back on any famous novel, is one of infinite complexity, because it is thus made up of so many different judgments, of so many different kinds of emotion. But what holds them together is these rare instances of survival. It's something that one calls integrity, though it has nothing to do with paying one's bills or behaving honorably in an emergency. What one means by integrity in the case of the novelist is the conviction that this is the truth. One of the most common pieces of advice writers receive is write what you know. And that's what Virginia Woolf is saying here. Because what we know, our own experiences, is a sort of truth that we can't get anywhere else. Writers must not be willing to obscure the truth in any way. So the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it is important. Every thought, our innermost being. True characters who live and breathe are the essence of great art. But there was a question in Wolf's time as to if women were even capable of making great art. Sir Egerton Bridges, in August of 1928, said, Female novelists should only aspire to excellence by courageously acknowledging the limitations of their sex. To which she responded, Lock up your libraries if you like, but there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my mind. Wolf was amazingly defiant at this type of thinking, of this rigidity and patriarchal society that she lived in that thought that women were less than men. Wolf then goes on to talk about Mary Carmichael, a modern writer of her time. After reading her work, she concludes that Mary does not have enough of the most desirable things that make a woman writer successful. Those things are time, money, and idleness. But she said, Give her a room of her own and 500 a year. Let her speak her mind and leave out half of what she now puts in, and she will write a better book one of these days. And give her a hundred years. Strangely, I didn't actually plan to be studying this during the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment being certified, but it has made me reflect on the state of women in literature today. Have we come very far? Are women being paid to write? That is a complicated answer, but I will say that it's more complicated by the state of art and how culture views art. We tend to be a people who knows great art when we see it. As a culture, we want the best quality art for the lowest possible price. We highly esteem those who are talented enough to bring us quality entertainment. 
But we're not always as generous as we should be when it comes to paying the artist for the work and dedication it takes to creating the things we enjoy. Back to Virginia Woolf. Though she's known as a feminist writer, she believed in the equality of the sexes. She said the normal and comfortable state of being is that when the two live in harmony together, spiritually cooperating. It's one of the tokens of the fully developed mind that it does not think specifically or separately of sex. Virginia seemed to recognize that privilege plays a huge part in the successful writers of the past. She says intellectual freedom depends upon material things. Poetry depends upon intellectual freedom. And women have always been poor. Not for 200 years, merely, but from the beginning of time. Virginia herself was coming from a place of privilege. Her aunt had died and left her 500 pounds per year. And that's the equivalent of about $3,400 per month. And she says that this is the optimal amount of money needed to have a humble but respectful life with the ability to travel and not have to work a job. This would give a writer the time necessary to create good art. The key concepts that Virginia Woolf lays out in A Room of One's Own is that women need time, money, space, and idleness. But even if we don't have all of these things, she says that we should produce in poverty and obscurity because it's worthwhile, because we're paving the way for future women writers. At the end of the lecture, she encourages the young women to fight against people like John Langton Davies, who said, When children cease to be altogether desirable, women cease to be altogether necessary. She tells them to write all kinds of books, hesitating to no subject however trivial or however vast, by hook or by crook. I hope that you will possess yourselves of money enough to travel and to idle, to contemplate the future or the past of the world, to dream over books and loiter at street corners and let the line of thought dip deep into the stream. Do what will be good for you and for the world. You say, take me on a treasure hunt. When they sing and dance Oh, I wish it was me Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with research assistance by Whitney Zahar, music by Kevin McLeod, and Epidemic Sound. Fabled is an independent podcast made possible by listener support. If you'd like to support the show, please visit fabledcollective.com. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>